0: Good evening and welcome here tonight to a really special 5 by 15 with James Rebanks who is the farmer from Cumbria who has, as far as I can see, completely transformed the way we all think about farming and how much we all now like our farmers who went through what you might call a bad PR patch for many years. James is the author of two astonishing books, The Shepherd's Life and this lovely book that we put up before. English Pastoral, which is now out in paperback. James came to Five by 15 before with his first book and in fact brought two sheep to London, which caused quite a stir and is apparently legendary in the Lake District as one of the kind of crazy things to do, but it was very memorable for all of us as I'm sure tonight will be for all of you. Please put questions in the chat, we, in the Q&A box, we'll come to as many as we can. And please buy copies of the book. It's a fantastic Christmas present. You don't have to be someone who's interested in food or farming to be completely entranced by James's extraordinary writing and extraordinary life. So James, welcome here to Five by 15. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, what's your day been like today? What you been doing?
1: So uh, I've been, uh, hi, firstly, Hi, thank you for having me on here. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be doing 5x15 again, and yeah, thank you for doing this, Rosie. And then today, what have I been doing today? I've been driving all around Cumbria because my young, uh, my gimmer my, my, my hogs, my yearling female sheep, uh, an hour that way, and my young male sheep are an hour that way on the wintering grounds. You have to sort of take a wintering ground wherever you can get it, and it seemed like a good idea going to both of those in one day, and literally I've been running around like a headless chicken. And your dog's just coming in the background, so that's good. We've got the dog here now. I know,
0: I know. I'm sorry about that. Sorry about the dog. <laughs> but has, has your farming life, does it really calm down in the winter? Uh,
1: it, it should do from now on. So there's, we've just gone through quite a hectic period where every day I have to rattle the tups, go around all the different flocks, because we have like a pedigree system on the farm. So it's all individual rams with individually selected females. And every day you go to each one of those lots. And So anyway... The mating bits all over. We should we should be into quite a simple winter system now, that fits the short days and yeah. Some of the young sheep are, have gone off the farm, so we're only going to those maybe once a week, and then the other farm looks after them. So yeah, in theory, I've got a couple more conversations to have with lovely people, and then I can I can hunker down and write my next book. <laughs>
0: so were you surprised by the success of your well your first book and then your second that? people got so captivated and
1: um i, I think modesty if you're modest you're supposed to say yes but probably not really like i think you have to if i'm being honest as a writer you have a degree of ego right you 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 set out in a way to try and do that and you if you didn't believe you could do it you probably wouldn't have the commitment to have seen it through in the doing of it so um Yeah, I'm probably naive and green enough to think, yeah, this happens to every writer. Everybody's lucky enough to have a book that everyone talks about or sells lots of copies. Of course, that isn't, sadly, that isn't the case for all writers. But um, I tend to go through life imagining it's going to happen, work very hard to make it happen. And I've been very lucky that lots of good things have happened to me in my books Yeah, So... Um, maybe I'm in for a shock someday when people stop reading my books or stop listening to me. Yeah.
0: No, I meant it more around, you know, the fact of farming. So you let's just talk about how you got to be a writer, because before we talk maybe about the farm, because you, you had two O-levels in religious studies and woodwork. Am I right on that? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and you were kind of a teenager who didn't quite know what to do with yourself. And the farm was not an obvious choice at one point.
1: Uh, no. So when I was maybe 10 years old, the farm, was, the farm seemed like it was hard and like TV seemed like it was easier or anything except being outside in the rain with your grumpy dad. By the time I was sort of 15, 16 and leaving school, that had, that had flipped and the farm seemed like the only thing in the universe to me. And on one level, that's never really changed. That's, that still takes up a huge amount of my, my mental space and what I care about. Um, but yeah, I was, I was the kind of kid at school that when I realized I wanted to be on the farm, I didn't understand what school was for. I didn't, I didn't understand what I was doing there. I didn't understand how it would give me anything that would help me in my future life. And although in my first book, <laughs> I put some of that on the school and the teachers, some of that's personal responsibility as well. I was, I was immature. I didn't know how to make anything of it. I didn't know how you made it something useful. It was only later on that I, I realized that actually books and schooling and things that are actually there to help you and you can use them in a positive way
0: how did you get to oxford
1: um i went out in my early 20s i went back to do evening classes uh my my wife my girlfriend became my wife helen who i'm still with now very happily uh but she she came along and said look what are you why are you being such a fool like why are you pretending to be jack the lad in the pub and why does nobody know that you read and why did you flunk out of school like which bit of your head's telling you that's cool because that's just stupid like grow up and uh, so I went back to evening classes and I had some really good teachers that sort of recognised that I was uh, strangely bookish and yeah maybe I had some talents of one kind or another and they encouraged me to apply to universities and yeah I had a very strange transition over a few weeks where I found myself getting a place at Oxford University and Yeah, it's been a little bit strange ever since. But yeah, yeah, I just just try to keep rolling, really. I'm not worried too much about it. I'm not thinking about it too much. I'm just sort of rolling on and enjoying my life and having a crack at things. And yeah, I'm very lucky.
0: So you had your granddad and you had your dad. And both of them had what seems like really different experiences of your farm in that your grandfather was able to inherit a process that had been going on for 600 years but when your father came along we were looking at different kind of farming styles
1: yeah so my um, and I've obviously used them a little bit in the structure of the book but my my grandfather in the book gave me a glimpse of an older farming world all right it it, it had changed a bit it was tractors not horses but the fields were still small they're still surrounded by hedgerows there's still multiple different species of animals on the farm and multiple different kinds of crops. There's still farm workers. It's 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 the last. I realize later that I, I'm seeing the last of that kind of farming. And then and then yeah, my dad's my dad's the one that has to make all the tough choices.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: has to simplify it. Has to keep way more livestock. Has to buy more inputs. That's using the the stuff that everybody's using the fertilizers, pesticides, chemicals. Um, I mean, my granddad had used some of those things a little bit, but really it's my dad that has to deal with the 1980s and 1990s. And and we live like a thousand foot up in Cumbria. So some of that stuff had hit lowland England 20 or 30 years earlier, but it it was just getting to to us. We're backwards um, in that period of my youth. And yeah, um, when I wrote the book, I was worried that my dad was getting the short end of the stick because I'm showing him at a time of his life where he's grumpy and got a lot on his shoulders. Um, and I've been quite pleased because people have come up to me afterwards and said, no, I think your dad's the hero of the book. He's, he's dealing with all the tough stuff. But yeah, I hope he is. I just, I, yeah, he's been dead six or seven years now. And uh, I lionized him a little bit in my first book. And that's OK, because mm-hmm. he was dying at the time that I wrote it. And then this book, I dealt with some tougher stuff that he was part of. And I wanted to do that, but still show you that he's, he's like a lot of farmers. He's, he's trying to be a decent person. He's trying to be a, a good parent or whatever. But we're putting those people under enormous pressure and we're asking them to we're asking them to do unrealistic things. And then we're being sort of surprised
0: or cross when it when things break. When did we start trying to make farmers do unrealistic things? I mean, my cousins farmed in Oxfordshire and I watched a farm go from being pigs, sheep, cows, bit of this, bit of that, very little fertilisers to coming through to the 1980s. And there was a shed at the bottom of the farm, which had great skull and crossbones on it because it was full of all sorts of poisons. And suddenly there weren't any animals. There was miles of hedges being ripped out. And you use a word somewhere, either in an interview I've read with you or in the book, you talk about the farm being angry. And I thought that was a really interesting expression as though the land was angry with how it was being used.
1: And, and, and we were angry, like by the 1980s and 1990s, we're, we're a quite a tense, stressed, everyone's mad at everybody kind of family. It wasn't very nice at times. And so the answer to your question is, when did we start doing those things? Well, when I was writing the book and thinking this stuff through to try and write something coherent about it for other people, I realized there's sort of two timescales. There's some of the technologies like the, the tractor my dad drives, even the pesticides and the fertilizers, they sometimes started many, many decades before they really screw my farm up. So it isn't when they start that matters, I would argue. They're, it's when they're used in combination to take the farm over some sort of invisible tipping point where you sort of look at it at the end of the process. If you didn't see the process, you'd look at it before and afterwards and go, Christ, that's, <laughs> that's dramatically different. But if you, li- if you lived it, these things happened incrementally, bit by bit, year by year, slightly bigger tractors, slightly more chemicals, slightly more fertilizers, slightly less species of animals simplified cropping pattern these things actually happened over about 30 years but probably the most it's when you sort of simplify them down to a stat or something that it blows your mind so in the book i talk about it took from when we domesticated a cow something like 10,000 years ago till 1995 to get a cow to give you four or five gallons of milk a day and we've doubled we've doubled it since 1995 so there's a there's, there's something weird happening whereby selective breeding's not new, cows aren't new, farmers trying to breed them for more milk isn't new, and all the rest of it. But you bring, in, you bring in artificial insemination, you bring in sort of nutritional science, you bring in fertilizers, you bring in new ideas about what to feed cows, you bring in new engineering about how to make crop and buildings, you bring all that stuff together and it starts to go sort of stratospheric. Sometime in the 1990s was the way I experienced lots of this. And, and that's quite weird, because I think we're used to thinking of just after the Second World War as being a tipping point, or the 1960s when Rachel Carson was writing as a tipping point. But in a way, they're, they're writing about quite the beginnings of this thing. And I, and I wanted to write about the moment where it becomes re- really obvious to sort of everybody, whoa, hang on a minute, this, is, this has got to a weird stage now. This is ugly. And, and also in the book, I wanted to tell the story of how that's experienced by people like your family in Oxfordshire or my family here to humanise it, to go, all right, what's, what's James' dad doing? Like, why, why does he start to use pesticides? What, why is that a good idea? Why, why is an otherwise rational, rational person doing all of this stuff which we're now worried about? And, and the truth is I still, I still live among that. I still live with elderly farmers now around me who who still believe in all of those things, who still have a sort of quite, na- have quite a naive view of progress, uh, that all technology is good, that more efficient, everything that makes it more efficient is good. And yeah, so there's these sort of t- muddled narratives flying around and people can live in different parts of that.
0: So don't people see that say, you know, that, that with, pesticides um, that you have to keep using more, as with fertilisers, because you're weakening the soil. Is it, I mean, it seems to be such a trap that a farmer like you has managed to get out of.
1: So, so, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of traps in this. So something like artificial fertilisers, we now know they're 30 or 40% less effective than they were 40 years ago. And when you look at that, it's quite complicated. It isn't that they're less potent. It's that when you start using them on healthy soil, they work brilliantly well, but over time, they have an effect on soil, which deteriorates the soil. And, and they become a sort of self-fulfilling negative cycle that takes the soil to a worse place, which means they work less well. And then you start using more of them to get the same output you did 40 years ago, which so you're in this sort of ever, ever worsening negative cycles. And there's so many of those in farming at the moment, whether it's artificial fertilizers or pesticides or whatever. And, And that's kind of weird psychologically, isn't it? Because you you can see why people would use it initially, but then you've also got to try and imagine that you're in their their shoes um, 30 or 40 years later where the whole farm is now one, one kind of crop and where it's highly vulnerable to things that they have to use pesticides to kill. And they're now two or three generations away from having done rotational farming and being able to mend the soil with livestock and green crops, we, we're, we're, we're a long way down the road now and, and a lot of their 20-year-old farmers have grown up with nothing else. They, they, they're almost, they'll almost laugh at me if I tell them that their grandfather used to lay hedges and there were hedges everywhere on their farm. And they're, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like we, we're only just making enough money to pay our bills and I'm, I'm having to do that with this massive tractor and this sprayer. Like How could this be different? They can't imagine it could be different or that it ever was different. And yet, because I'm, I'm a nostalgic hillbilly peasant, I, I know it was different. I can remember it being different. I'm, all, I'm only 47 years old.
0: So when, you, when you took over the farm, what was the state of it? What did you have to repair and put back together? So, what was your soil like, for
1: instance? Yeah, so, so, that's, a good, so that's a good question. I, I've been really, really lucky. The, the farm I live on now that I'm talking to you from now. an old-fashioned hill farm it's it's not really been plowed maybe once or twice bits of it in the first world war or the napoleonic wars but mostly it's been a grazed farm which means that the damage is way less than on an arable farm to the soil it's mostly been grazed and it had the remnants of the hedgerows so there's these old grown out hedges everywhere full of berries so the field fairs and wintering birds are there uh there's there's fragments of woodland Uh, there's quite a lot of what you'd want to be there, but it's just been hanging on. It's been suffering, me and my dad and my granddad, for like 50 or 60 years, getting less and less and less. And I I couldn't see that when I was 20 years old. We were deeply proud of our farm, and it seemed to have more wildlife than other kinds of farms. So we were like, we're not part of the problem. Why are these crazy ecologists telling us there's a problem? But when, over the last 20 years, when we've had lots of ecologists on the farm and naturalists, they've told me all the tough news which is my hay meadows now when I took it over my hay meadows are pretty good they've got like 95 species of grasses and herbs and flowers in them but they used to have 110 or 105 so there's so I'm right at the high end of good stuff that's left but it's still nowhere near as good as it used to be so we've been putting the 10 extra species in Um, the hedgerows are all Zombie hedges. What well, the ecologists call zombie hedgerows, which are these overgrown old hawthorns that aren't a proper hedge anymore. They're doing they're doing some good stuff, but they're on the way out. They'll disappear in the next thirty years. Um, and I could go on and on and on. And then the soil, the soil we have fifteen percent soil organic matter. And when you ask the soil scientists, they say, James, look at your hedge. It's twenty three percent. There's an eight percent drop in soil organic matter between the best healthy soil on your land. And where your dad grazed, sure. and so so every little bit of the farm we look at, there's there's the damage of the last thirty years. There's sometimes damage from a very long period of people being here. Let's be honest, uh, and then we have to look at it as honest. The, our, our thing is we look at that as honestly as possible, and we go, okay, what could we do about that? What what would mending that look like? Could we fit that into the thing like the the world view that we have about the livestock and the cattle and the sheep, and how would you fix it and so for a hedge, for example, that's pretty easy. I've got to get, I've got to get two new fences somehow afford to do that. We're lucky there's some schemes still at the moment that enable you to do that. Plant a new hedgerow, copy some of the older stuff. If it's the soil, I can mend my soil quite quickly. I can put 2 or 3% soil organic matter improvement into my soils just by changing the grazing. So literally, instead of my sheep being out of the field for two weeks, which is what my granddad would have done, We're now trying to do these 70, 80, sometimes 110 day recovery periods in summer where we're growing vegetation, which is no one's ever seen in my fields before, but like sort of chest high grasses that seed and flower. And what we're basically doing there is nothing that my grandfather would have recognized. We're listening to soil scientists and they're saying you need more photosynthesis at more length. And then there's this massive flow of carbon into the roots. The soil will aerate itself. And then when we graze in midsummer, we're trying to do we're trying to waste grass, which is a completely alien concept to my grandfather. So we're trying to do mo- this thing called mob grazing, where we'll trample a huge amount of organic matter on the surface and all the muck and stuff. Uh, and then that feeds the soil, that feeds the worms, the soil microbiology. And like I say, we can we can increase our soil organic matter by two or three percent within four years, which is mind blowing. Nobody
0: nobody in my family has ever known that stuff until now. And do you find that if, when the cattle and the sheep, for that matter, graze on plants, of, you know, grass, ex- grasses, etc., that they they also keep much healthier? Yeah, ma- good uh, yeah mass- massively so. So
1: the science of lots of different bits of agriculture is all telling us the same thing now. So they're now telling us that after after 60 or 70 years of having experts telling us that sh- sheep and cows should just eat ryegrass, and that's fine, We're now being told, surprise, surprise, cows are not unlike us. The more variety of things they eat, the more healthy they are, that they somehow have an evolved skill to self-medicate or to find the minerals and and elements, trace elements that they need, if you let them, if there's enough herbage and vegetation and trees around. Uh, The soil scientists are telling us the same thing, that each plant, each different species of grass or herb or flower, has different root exudates, pumping different things into the ground, feeding different soil biology. Um, The more species of grazing animals that we have that that crap in the fields and piss in the fields, that all helps the the biology of that system as well. So whichever angle you're looking at this from, or even from like a biodiversity point of view, um, what the sort of rewilding ecologists are saying is, James, can you turn each of your fields into like a woodland clearing? Like another way of looking at that is just put the hedgerows back with some field trees around the outside and let you have a diverse sort of meadow type system within each field. So it doesn't really matter which angle you come at it from. It's all uh, maximum plant diversity, mimicking nature with grazing struck large herbivores or mid-sized herbivores, um, trying to maximize the amount of different habitats. And then the big one, so even when I got interested in nature more 15 years ago, it was about could I put the habitats back? And the big thing of probably the last five years is it isn't just the habitats. It's the processes that used to happen in the habitats. Mm-hmm. So wild boar used to be dynamic, uh, make woodlands dynamic. They plough the, yeah. the understory up. They turn the turf over. That's that's something I need to replicate somehow. So I need to put pigs in my woodland sometimes. Um, or if I'm going to graze, I need to mimic what a herd of large herbivores did in the past, bison or auric or whatever it was. And what's really cool, like I had a message from one of my ecologist friends yesterday because we had a great egret turned up on the farm yesterday, which I'm very proud of. And he sent me a message, which I'm so proud of. He said, your place is getting to the point where it's better than a nature reserve. And do you know why that is? It's because there's less restrictions on a farm. If you, if you flip your mind to caring about the right stuff, You can do amazing dynamic things, you can experiment, you can do things right and and play with it. And and actually, it turns out that grazing ecology is one of the missing things in most of our landscapes, proper nature mimicking grazing ecology. And if you look, I don't mind talking about this, if you look at the rewilding projects like NEP in I think it's in Sussex, Mm -hmm. um what why is that working so well? Well, it's letting the next stage of succession happen with thorny scrub. That's Mm -hmm. great. You go look at it, you're like, okay. We've never understood why that was a good thing, but we do now. Um, but it's the cattle. It's the cattle and the pigs in it. And it's because they're mimicking things that happened in our once wild landscapes. So is it perfectly wild? No, I don't even call what I'm doing rewilding. I just call it like nature-friendly farming or doing your best. But it's, it's, it's kind of cool because you think, hang on a minute. Every time there's a thing I don't really understand, I'll find the expert and I'll go, OK, tell me about this thing. What is it that wild boar do? And how would I, how would I copy that? And then you do it. And like we put some pigs in our woodland last summer. I think I might have got overexcited here, Rosie. <laughs> um, we, we put pigs in the woodland. And then after we, so it's like a couple of days, they'll rough up some of it and then you move them on to the next bit. And then a few weeks later, I'm with my little boys. So I've got Isaac, who's nine and Tom, who's four. We went to look where the, the tufts were, you know, like with their nose, they turn over the turf. And when you lift the tufts up, there's under every one, there's like a red ant nest or there's a toad hiding under them. And basically what that is, is those things have been hanging around for bloody millennia, waiting for the wild boar to come back to create the thing that they used to live in. And it's mad. Like we, we built a bunch of, bunch of wetlands with a friend, a uh, local charity, last, this time last year. And that's where the great egret turns up at. And you're like, hang on, we, we don't have to be the problem. We don't have to be the jerks. We can, <laughs> we can put it back together. Your family can put it back together in Oxfordshire and I can put it back together here. And and all right, there's bits where I have to make a living and there's bits of my farm that's a bit overgrazed compared to what they would have been in nature but, or the sheep are in too long. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's limits, but there's so much we can do. And, and I, think we've, I think we've almost become apathetic. We've, we've got this sort of mindset, oh, it's all screwed. Farming's bad. They don't care. Like, we can't do anything. Yeah, we can. We really, really, really can. And it's, and
0: it's exciting to do it. Sorry, I've am of evangelical. No you, no, you should be. We need you. But um, OK, so I suppose the million dollar question is literally you talk about net. They're not actually attempting to grow anything in net. They're not any longer trying to make it a, a workable farm financially. You are a workable farm financially as well. So how do you can you combine the two?
1: Uh, I, I can't do what they can do. So the, to be fair to them, they are producing this amazing high quality beef from the cattle in that system. So they are producing something. But um, can I do what they could do? No, there'd hardly be any livestock on my farm. So I have to cheat and I'm all about cheating. I've got no problem with cheating. Cheating on my farm is finding the least productive bits on my farm and putting a fence around them and then saying, OK, I need, thorny, I need a chunk of thorny scrub like a net. What would that be? okay, I'll plant blackthorn I'll just plant blackthorn in that half acre there or the acre over there. I don't really need that piece of land anyway because it wasn't very productive um and then why does net? Work? okay, I'll put the cattle in twice a year i'll put the, I'll just let them go in and nibble the edges and trample a bit and make a bit of mess or the pigs either side of that, I need grassland that's really productive, and I need sheep and cattle that pay for themselves, so the focus on the focus on the pastures is to make them as Mm-hmm. as productive as they can possibly be without inputs and it turns out the latest soil scientist and this long recovery grazing does that it's just a good financial idea i don't buy any artificial fertilizers i don't buy any pesticides to do that and then the key question is what do i what kind of livestock do i put in there and how do i make that pay and i don't have a perfect answer for that because i think we pay too little for some of those products in, our, in the shops but we breed pedigree livestock I can't make commodity beef or commodity land production pay when I'm doing everything else around it that costs money, but I can make pedigree livestock pay. And that, that isn't a perfect answer for every farmer in Britain that, that plays into my family's skills and I can breed and special things that I sell to other people. If we want everyone, to, if we want everyone to do that, that isn't the answer, the pedigree thing. The answer is that we would pay people to manage land in a certain way or somehow we'd have some sort of mechanism where we, we ban the, the bad kinds of production and we support through legislation and our purchasing the good kind of production. And,
0: yeah. Are we going to get people to pay more for food? I'm, I'm, I'm just making the assumption that you reckon our food is too cheap, which I think most people now recognise it is. But politically, people want to keep food cheap they absolutely,
1: absolutely do want to keep food cheap and they want to keep food cheap because it's the get out of jail free card for a sort of American idea of looking at the world which is like what's the Marie Antoinette thing let them eat bread well here it's let them have KFC and let them have cheap food in the supermarket it's, it's a sop and a mask for a highly unequal society where we screw people basically and if you want to see it in it's most red and tooth and claw version you go to the American Midwest mm-hmm. and they've made food the cheapest food in history so it's 7% of people's household budgets or 15% for the poorest households. Has that made people in those places healthy, wealthy, and wise and affluent? No, the exact opposite. Because it's done by disempowering the vast majority of people, putting the vast majority of people on, on low-income minimum wage in, in de-skilled supermarket and logistic-type jobs. So <laughs> sorry, that, that's a whole bunch of stuff. But it, the, answer, the answer is something like Norway. Where you, you say, hang on a minute, yes, food's going to be more expensive, and yes, we're going to have to be grown up about this, and we're going to have to redistribute wealth. Um, and does anybody in our political system, is, is anyone in our political system grown up enough to, to lead that kind of conversation? No, they're idiots, aren't they? Absolute idiots. I've just come from watching the news. They, I mean, just, we've become the laughing stock of the world, haven't we? I mean, just idiots everywhere. So, but does that does that mean that we give up forever or become apathetic? I don't I don't think so. We have, wherever, however bad it is, we have to fight back from that, don't we? We have to we have to organize and we have to make this a serious matter of political conversation. We have to try and get the right people to be listened to, the right people in parliament over time. We, and we have to to change our society. And and what we've sorry, I'm I'm rabbiting on, but what we've got to is what we started in the 1980s, isn't it? It's hmm. We're finishing off the 1980s right now. We're going to liberalise everything, free trade everything. Going to make food cheap, and that will make everything fine. No, it's it was disastrous thinking then. It's taken lots of us a long time to wake up to it. It just isn't the way to go. If we want to, if we want to be a successful, healthy country, we we need to think about all of these things.
0: So, do you see? people in farming beginning to change i mean i, I mean i i go to something called the Groundswell conference which is now really rising in numbers of people and even if farmers are coming because they can no longer afford the price of the inputs they're coming away with the sense that the land doesn't have to be like this i i think i think the biggest cultural change in british farming for a
1: very very long time is taking place right now mm. and and it's happening for all sorts of reasons, as you say. I think almost every farmer I, knows, I know knows that no one is going to protect them at the moment. That the grown-ups who should be in government, who should be protecting them, should be creating a system, aren't going to. And that the best chance they've got of surviving is to cut their input costs, is to get out of that commodity, large-scale commodity production thing, which is going to screw them. It's going to kill them, their business and their connection to the land and somehow create systems which, which work better, which are less based on inputs, which are less ecologically problematic, which look after soil better. It's, all right, everyone's not as evangelical as me, but that, all the farmers I know in one way or another are more interested in soil than they used to be. Mm-hmm. They're, all, they're all saying, the vast majority are saying yes, not no, when ecologists are coming to work with them now and talk about the things they need to do. And there's another side to this, which is what we're we're signing free trade deals with Australia and America and New Zealand, and some of those farmers also know that they're going to have to go like hell in that ugly system, doing all of the ugly stuff just to stay alive, just to compete producing grain or wheat or whatever it might be, or cheap pigs. But there's a hell of a lot of farmers like me as well who are deeply connected to their farm and saying, actually, enough. I- I- enough. We need to get out of this and we need to create something around ourselves that works better. And... And, and the, the hope for me is that the vast majority of the British public care about this stuff as well. When, you, mm. when, when the pollsters ask people about the American or the Australian free trade deal and its potential impacts on animal welfare or our public health, something like 87, 90% of people object to that. This is being done against most people's judgment, against most people's care. Um, it, this isn't just a sort of middle class foodie thing or people who are lucky enough like me to live on a farm in the Lake District. I reckon everyone cares and it doesn't matter where you go. Um, but we can't just do it in the, no offense to him, but we can't just do this in the sort of Jamie Oliver way, which is they just tell the people they'll go shopping differently. With all due respect, that's not enough. We need, we need laws, we need trade policies, we need systems, that, systems that make this work. The, I know from my own family, I've got four kids. You go shopping, have you got time to think through every ethical decision, read every label, try and unpack what it all means? Of course you don't. Most people don't have the knowledge, don't have the time don't have the education, don't have the connection to the land or farming anymore to make those decisions. That's that's
0: what we have government for. That's what we have experts for. Hmm. The thing I've seen lately that's given me the biggest shock was a diagram that the Food Foundation did. I'm a trustee of it, and it showed the weight of humans on the globe, which was a, a circle, say, the size of a lemon. And then it showed the weight of domestic animals which was a circle the size of an orange and then it showed the weight of wild animals which was a very small circle about the size of a cherry and if you take the numbers it means for every human being on earth we have 10 domestic animals each in some cage somewhere like you and me we're responsible for 20 of them and for the first time in my life, that made me really think that we have to possibly think about, you know, that fake meat, for instance, for everything you buy in the supermarket, which is lasagnas or shepherd's pies or whatever. Make it in a factory. I, what do you think? I'm very puzzled about it. I really want to know what you think. And then you buy proper meat like yours. I I, I don't think that. I don't.
1: Think that, I don't think that's a good idea. I do. I think. Sorry. Let's talk about both of those things. So, can everybody keep eating ever more meat? Some of which is going to be grown from places that could feed us with other things, that other veg, pulses, nuts. Some of which, by definition, is going to be produced in the Amazon or in Indonesia. Are there grave problems there that need addressing? Absolutely, yes. Um, but if I think it can. If, I think an overly globalised looking at this can lead to overly simplistic solutions which don't really work. So I, I would bring this back to Britain. I would say, I think what we should eat should come from what we can grow, to be honest. I think I think the best way to look at what you should eat in Britain is to focus on how we should farm. And how should we farm? Well, in Britain, we need to find some wild some wild places somewhere. It looks highly unlikely we're going to create them the perfect big wild places that some people dream of, but we can get quite pl- quite close in lots of places like the valley where I live. Um, and it also looks like that we can no longer have that sort of monocropping, modern industrial arable agriculture that we need to get livestock back into those places. So I think that I absolutely believe that the policy focus and our individual ethical focus should be on, is the food coming from a system that really works, that produces, significant amounts of biodiversity that is actually sustainable, is part of a self-reinforcing nutrient cycle. And I I live in the Lake District, I'm surrounded by sheep and cattle. No one's gonna convince me that it's a good idea for me to eat less of that and more of something which by definition comes from another country with with food miles and lots of fossil fuel usage. Now, my side of the argument has to have a local food system which doesn't involve taking the sheep to an abattoir in Exeter and then fetching it back on another wagon. Otherwise, that's a farce too. But I think a lot of this is about creating local food systems that genuinely work, that are proper nutrient cycles. And I totally believe it can be done. I think the answer to where a lot of our calories should come from is intensive horticulture at a local scale. On relatively tiny amounts of land with really clever, sort of no tail organic horticulture, you can create vast amounts of food. And and where we are going to graze livestock, particularly in marginal landscapes like mine, we have to answer the challenge of how do we get enough biodiversity in there that it's almost wild? And, and I'm quite happy to play my part in that as well. So you look at the landscape I'm in now at the moment, what is, what's the best it could be? That's the question I ask myself. What's the best it could be and what would be the food that came out of it? And most of the things, most of the ecologists I work with, and I work with loads now and I'm friends with loads, would argue you could put most of the stuff back that should be in it without any great problem. It's, it's not actually that hard with some goodwill and some imagination. It requires a little bit of yes. landscape design, a little bit of farm redesign. But most of the species that should live in my ecosystem can thrive in that. So, so <laughs> I'm not sure I've answered your question, but I have said a lot of things. No, you, have, you
0: have, Do you have a good local food network around you? And how, how do you think a local food network should run?
1: So that's a good question, and I'm going to tell you the truth, which is I'm not the cleverest person around about that. So I would, I would push people to uh, things like the Zootopia Farm Project or Carolyn Steele's book, Zootopia. There's, I would encourage people to go and look at um, Richard Perkins' work in Sweden where he's doing this amazing uh, sort of no-till organic. Um, there's a whole bunch of people that are way cleverer than me at that. I'm not part of a local food network. What, what we do here and we're slow, way slower than I, I think we should have been, but we're part of like an organic local veg box scheme. Everyone mm-hmm. can do that. Something everybody listening to this program can do, sign up to that. Um, in terms of meat, I, I don't eat like anonymous meat. I don't think anyone should eat. If you don't know where it's from, you don't know who produced it, don't Great eat it. Ask a lot of questions in restaurants. I, I've, I've become that person now. I ask the waiter every time, and half the time the waiter, poor waiter is too busy and doesn't know, but you've got to ask, like, where's it from? And is it from a, a farm that farms things in a way that you agree with? So my, at, at its simplest, we eat something like 400 kilos of food each a year. And we know that if you swap an acre of British farming for an acre beyond our shores, it's usually two acres that you're taking up because British farming's more productive and we're in the Gulf Stream and we've got this good soil. So I'd be very wary of solutions that, that shifted your food print offshore i think we should eat the things we produce here just do it way way better
0: well that's that's brilliant i we've got a lot of questions 30 I, I want to start with one that was submitted even before we began because it was something i wanted to ask you as well this is from denise Milhouse, who asked you about tourism and i know that uh, how, how do you mesh tourism everyone read the stories about people making footpaths 10 feet wide during the pandemic because so many of us went for walks across fields and that in itself caused a problem so how do we how does your world and tourism work together in a healthy way
1: so i i've completely flipped on this since i was sort of 20 years old Tw- 20 years old i'm like who the hell are these people why, do they, why are they here what do they want I go away uh 47 year old me doesn't think that at all i and it was lockdown that, that finished my journey off on that so during lockdown, we would go over the, like, to the lake or whatever just to spend some time on the lakeshore because we're lucky enough to live not far from there. And when, when lockdown stopped, you look around and, or you talk to people that have come to visit and they're people that's working in the NHS that have been working in like COVID wards, they're doctors, they're every kind of person you can imagine from modern Britain. And I'm looking around thinking who, who am I to tell those people that they don't need beautiful places, that they, they don't need green spaces, that they don't need to walk that they don't need all the things I need every day. I, I, can, I can find within me no good reason how I can stop those people coming. Um, and I think I need them. So we know that there's a 2 billion tourist economy in the Lake District. I think that the vision I have, and I'm just a farmer I, I, on one level, who cares what I think, but the vision I have for looking after this landscape better with more, more, more wildlife, more better farming, I need those 18 million people that come to the Lake District to care about that. I want to buy it, want to visit my farm, maybe want to support me and my neighbours to do that better. And I need that whole, tourism, that whole tourism ecosystem to care as well. The local hotels and people to, to make the case for why you would eat less meat, but better meat and local meat. And, and you need a local food supply chain, don't you? You need local abattoirs, you need local cutting plants, you need places where we can process the things that we grow and we're still going in the exact opposite direction um so I'm, yeah
0: sorry no 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 really good answer um sarah hubbard asks is farming a viable career anymore with food prices so low and she says it seems you subsidize your income through your writing work and i wonder how others manage particularly as the government opens this up to cheaper food um, so um so i sort of <laughs> The truth
1: is I don't subsidize the farm with my writing career. That would be a terrifying business model because most writers don't sell very many books and sooner or later I'd come unstuck. So no, our farm has to pay. Um, It it sometimes pays now and it sometimes doesn't, it varies on the years, but the fact that it sometimes pays is better than what it was 10 years ago. So it's all about on these farms, cutting your input costs and producing what you can with as few inputs as possible and then adding value as best that you can. Is it a viable career? It looks like an absolutely terrifying way to try and pay your bills, to be honest. And what what we're basically saying to farmers at the moment is that there's two routes. One is produce commodities, and we're gonna drive down the price of those commodities and you're gonna have to farm however ugly you have to do it just just to cling to survival. That's, That's the mainstream model. And then the other one, which is almost as big a con is, Find a niche, find, find, a, find a sort of little hustle that you can do in your particular place. And there aren't enough niches, there aren't enough hustles to keep alive all of the farmers that we need alive. So we do need a different food system. Uh, we do need local food system. Sorry, I'm, I'm slightly despairing of my own voice saying this, but we, we need to create systems in which it is viable. And if it isn't viable now, that's not because it's somehow inherently flawed. It's because we've created such a screwed up system.
0: Well, I agree with you about that. Um, Here's an interesting question from Michelle Hawkins saying, is there a parallel between soil resistance to too many fertilisers and the human body's resistance to too many antibiotics, both supposed to be beneficial but overuse creates harm? Can the problems that farmers face with being tasked to use fertilisers be amplified and explained by using evidence from antibiotic studies to illustrate the harm that overuse can cause? I I think that's
1: a really good question and probably a really good question for somebody cleverer than me about antibiotics and the science of medicine. But I think I would I would confine myself just to saying that there are lots of crossovers between these debates. And it's the reading I've done on about it does suggest that there's lots of parallels between these things. That's like like what's the Michael Pollan thing that you're um, you're as healthy as the food that your food ate? Yeah. (laughs) It it turns out that really does matter, that our guts need all of the antitoxins and things that come from plants that grow in soil, where they're fighting all of their own battles and therefore have those antitoxins in them. So I'm not gonna blather about stuff I don't know enough about, but um, yeah, I think she makes an interesting point
0: or he makes an interesting point. Um, David, um, sorry, Paul Mills asks about, does no-till feature in your farming practice? And I know we haven't actually talked about what no-till is so far, so that's a good way into it. So I'm I'm sitting at about
1: 1,050 feet above sea level in the Lake District with a really short growing season and mountain soils, basically, acidic mountain soils. So this is not a good place to do arable cropping. They did do some cropping in the past in small fields, but we're entirely a pastoral farm. We don't do any ploughing at all. Uh, No-till, for anyone that doesn't know, is basically the practice of instead of ploughing the field to uh, break the ground, create a seed bed and plant the new crop in it, it's basically not disturbing the ground and making a small scratch or, or, or finding other clever ways to put the crop in the ground without disturbing most of it. And the more we learn about soil microbiology, it turns out that this is a this is a really good idea and that ploughing is a really bad idea. Um, which is a complete mind bender. My dad died seven years ago and my granddad died 30 years ago. And they would have, if you told them that ploughing is terrible, they'd have said, what, the, what are you smoking? How can that be terrible? That's literally how you feed the world, isn't it? And so we're learning crazy stuff that's overturning some of the stuff we always knew.
0: But there is ploughing and ploughing, isn't it? I mean, things got really bad when the ploughs started to go really deep
1: yeah so there was a sort of there was a sort of arms race where um, you've exhausted the soil, but if only you could go down another four inches with a deeper plowshare yeah, you'd bring up some more nutrients turns out ideally you wouldn't do any of that that really the best thing you can do for soil is not to disturb it uh, to let it build up its microarhizal micro fungi networks and all the rest of it um, it's a pretty disastrous thing to do to soil we now know uh breaking it apart, exposing it to the rain, heating it up freezing it, whatever, it's really meant to be covered. Uh, bare soil isn't a thing that happens very often in nature.
0: Hmm. And I guess that we've also, it's always amazing how little we know about soil until now, that it is this vast living structure and therefore when you plough it, it's sort of like bombing a town and trashing everyone's habitat over and over again. Yeah, and,
1: and most of what we're all eating <laughs> is grown from fields that are ploughed. That, that's that's how weird this is. We're at a stage in civilization where everything that made us what we are, everything that got us from A to B, where we're at now, his rests on the plough, really. Uh, right from ancient Rome, ancient Egypt, and now we know that that technology is problematic, and that we probably need to find other ways to do it. I mean, that's if that isn't mind blowing, I don't know what is. And <laughs> most people, for most of history, would would be absolutely astonished to discover this
0: so we've got two questions that um come at the same thing one from jimmy woodrow and one from amanda randall jimmy says mainstream science hasn't caught up with what james is brilliantly doing partly i would say more than partly but anyway because there's no corporate funding until they do how does james think we can get wider public buy into these farming systems and amanda randall asks, what does the agrochemical industry think of these changes in thinking how can we reduce its influence?
1: So um, second question first. I'll probably, forget, <laughs> then I'll probably forget the first one. But the, agro, the big ag, big farmer own agricultural science for the most part. If you go to the American universities, which are the leading ones in the world on how this stuff all works, you find that uh, half of the staff, dare, well, the staff daren't speak out against the status quo because they're paid yeah. by those large companies. It's astonishing. And do they want all of this to happen? No, they don't. Because I, I buy very little on my farm when I change the system. The old system, when I was going broke and my dad was going broke, you buy a vast amount of stuff. You're literally on this treadmill. Oh, yes, please, I'll buy that. Oh, yes, please, I'll buy that. And, and their dream for agriculture is, well, actually, their dream for agriculture is not to need it at all, to make everything in the factory and not need anything from the land or some troublesome peasants. But before that, the, the second best option is, a system in which they control the farm absolutely. So that happens everywhere. So they'll say they'll buy your milling wheat off you but only if you have their agronomist and only if that you do what their agronomist tells you which is to put all the chemicals on that they will sell you and the artificial nutrients that they will sell you. And like you start to think about this for a moment they they've got they, they determine the, the 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 end price. They they bring a member of staff to your team that you pay for and they sell you all of the inputs and they can leave you exactly no margin or a tiny little margin that's that's basically how most north american canadian increasingly european and british agriculture works they've you're just there as a sort of slave to be part of the sort of cog in their machine with them making all of the money out of it and other people can do whatever they like but i I personally want no as little part of that as possible. I want, I want some agency, I want some control over my farm. And they don't own the sun, they don't own the rain, they don't own my soil. Um, and if I have to hustle and find ways to, to pay my bills, I will do,
0: but I'm not, I'm not in their game anymore, I refuse to. Well, that's really good. I think I can't remember exactly what the stat was, but it was something like of the, if you spend a pound on your food, in a shop, whatever, more or less, whatever it is, only about 10% of that actually gets to the farmer. The rest goes to all the industries that have processed it all the way through. Um, I, I, can, I, can I add to that? There's, there's, yeah. an amazing,
1: there's an amazing stat doing the rounds about North American agriculture at the moment, which, is over, which is over the last 20 years, I think the stat came out of Canada, the, the income, the, the profit retained by the farmers is less than zero. There's literally a table where the money that farmers made around about sort of 1997, 1998 goes into the red and that actually most farmers are making a loss. Farming is a loss-making activity because they've become so good at controlling the inputs and outputs part of this. You're literally just there to be a monk. It's incredible.
0: So what happens is presumably a bigger farm buys your farm all the yeah. way through until you're actually owned by Walmart or some giant corporation.
1: Yeah. Uh, so if you go to... Iowa and places like that, you're driving past farmsteads that and there's no one there, like there's literally no one there, they've, they've either given up and left they sold out to a large corporation large agribusiness or they rent their land out for, to, to those people and they've, they've gone to Florida, now I'm not suggesting we should feel massively sorry for them, some of those people will be quite wealthy but um, it's a really weird system in which they want to own everything and control everything
0: Okay, now Sarah Marriott who's a farmer she says for the last four years I've managed a 14 acre small holding in Shropshire just by restoring hedges, proving pasture, seeding wildflowers and grasses. What do you think are the three most important things I should do now to enhance further its biodiversity value?
1: Okay so I'm, I'm new to wetlands. Wetlands are mind-blowing. Ponds, wet bits, the, the more wet stuff, muddy stuff, Boggy stuff you can create in the right places. That's amazing stuff. Uh, as much thorny or willowy scrub as you possibly can. It turns out no one no one throughout history in Britain valued thorny or willowy scrub, but that's why NEP's amazing. They basically let thorny scrub happen everywhere. So more of that, even if it's just in a hedgerow system, that's fine. And um, yeah, for me, maybe the final one I would recommend is get your head around this grazing pattern. Have a look at how Greg Judy on YouTube does it, this farmer in Missouri, he's amazing. Um, he's a really big system, but it's basically this uh, moving twice a day cattle thing. right? Mm-hmm. So he's got 360 cows and followers. Uh, he's not in the same place, for like he grazes a place, but then he's gone. He's literally mimicking like a herd of bison with a large cattle enterprise around this huge landscape where he's farming. Trying to replicate that in a small way, on a small farm is difficult, but yeah, get your head around the sort of rotational long recovery grazing, That it has amazing effects.
0: I read something really interesting about bison the other day was that they were also, it was terribly important that they had their apex predator, the wolves, that ran around the edge of the bison and kept them all together so that they moved as this block doing their nibbling across the the grass and then leaving it. Yeah, it's. everything had a a purpose that's right it's it's and we've now got such strange
1: ideas so a lot of the stuff i grew up with we i grew up that if you left cattle outside in the winter that was like neglectful turns out cattle are perfectly suited to live outside if they're the right kind of cattle right size in the right place with the right kind of turf it, it can be done over most of england but most farmers don't believe that they've they haven't seen this greg judy stuff they haven't we're so conditioned now to think about it in the way that we've done it for the last 100 years, it's really difficult for loads of farmers to think it could be done any other way.
0: So I've got a question here from someone on the, uh, the new DEFRA schemes about SFI and ELMS will encourage farmers in the right direction, or are they a waste of time and money? They,
1: uh, they're not a waste of time and money. It would be great if those things worked like the rhetoric says that they should, or that they want them to. My, my fear has always been that, I, I think all land is in the scales basically. Uh, there's, there's like a commercial value often for doing the wrong thing. And then there's like a, there's another value for doing things right, ecologically or doing them sustainably. And if doing them the wrong way pays better than doing them the, the right way, people are, most farmers are gonna have to do it the wrong way. and I think what's been coming out of this government for several years now is progressive rhetoric about fixing the system or creating schemes to make it better, but not enough actual commitment to have enough money at enough rates and at enough scale to actually change it. And and nor do they want to make the tough decisions where you would uh, have a different trade policy, stopping some of that stuff coming in, undercutting us. Do they really want to get serious about educating people about food? Do they really want to help the poorest people with the redistribution of wealth for more expensive food that's produced more sustainably? No, I don't think they want to do any of those things. They they, they probably think I'm a sort of blithering communist or something. But if you look at the most progressive countries on earth, that is that is the way that you'd have to do this.
0: Um, I'm sorry, dog jumping off the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone brought up this dreaded statistic uh, of that was in the Farmers Weekly some years ago about we only have 60 harvests left. I think that obviously people like you are completely changing that, but are enough people changing it yet?
1: So uh, I just did a programme for Radio 4 about about that very issue, about sort of regenerative agriculture and whether it made sense. And it turns out that statistic's not very good. I think James Wong's been saying this for a while, but I don't think that statistic's true about 60 years left it's it varies from place to place in some places it may be shorter a lot of places it's longer but as a general truth in most places where we do annual crop arable agriculture we're depleting soil faster than you can build it mm-hmm. we are depleting the main resource now whether that's 60 200 or a thousand years we're 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 doing things that we shouldn't be doing uh, are enough people turning doing enough to turn that around no I had a train journey down England about a year ago, actually, on the train. You know when you do one of those long train journeys and you look out the window? And it must have been a while since I've done that journey in winter with the knowledge that I now have about soil, and I was horrified. I was looking at the fields going, oh, my God, all these bare fields that I've had maize in, where the, 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 the soil's running off, that they're sodden, that they're exposed to the elements. No, there's a lot of Britain is. Stuck in a farming model where the people doing it think they're doing the right things, uh, but are they really doing the right things? No. A lot of our farming is pretty bad, at, at a massive scale, and we need to. That's why I want the the schemes that they're trying to design. They need to be massively bigger than the schemes of the past in terms of investment, and they're actually they're actually making them smaller.
0: Mm-hmm. This
1: is like this is like a greenwash way to get rid of agricultural subsidies. But if yeah. you look at it, if you look at it critically, we need to spend way more to turn this around. And the best example anyone ever told me is, we think the British food and farming and sort of land-based economy stuff around food is worth somewhere between 120 and 160 billion pounds a year. They think they're going to mend that with like 1.2 billion pounds worth of sort of green subsidies. You're not. You're not. If the 130 billion is making things worse, you're literally just going to be putting plasters over scabs in different places. That's That's not a proper solution. You either need to engage with the structural problems of the 130 billion bit, or you need to massively beef up the public investment on the good stuff. And we're doing neither. We're doing, and it's it's infuriating because there's so many good people involved in that. There are good civil servants, there are good farmers, there are lots and lots of good people with goodwill trying to make that all work. And yet, unless it addresses those big numbers, it's gonna be worse. We're (laughs) gonna, we're going to make things worse.
0: Okay, so we're nearly at the end and that's got to leave it on an up note. So what can we all, what can we all do? Local um, food, do? eat uh, a bit less meat, eat seasonally.
1: So I would, uh, a really simple thing you do, sign up to a local uh, veg box scheme. And, and when you get loads of like cabbage and celeriac, work out how to cook it because we're not quite sure in our house, but definitely sign up to a local veg scheme. Try and cut out of your diet. I wouldn't say cut out meat per se, but get way more thoughtful about meat is my thing. So uh, find, go on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, your local community, ask around, find out where the good farmers are that produce meat in the right ways, in the right systems and give them your business. Even if, you know, that, that may be eating less or, or maybe you have to make a special effort to go there twice a year and put some stuff in a freezer, whatever. Um, make much more of an effort on the meat side. and. And then the, probably the third one I'd say is start being really troublesome. Like literally be that person that asks the young manager of the supermarket to, to explain to you why the shelves are full of New Zealand lamb when we live in a country that should produce enough of its own lamb. Be the person that go easy on waiters and waitresses because it's not too fair on them. But ask for, them, ask for the manager or the chef to tell you where the meat came from. And... If enough of us start doing that, you can guarantee they're not going to want to be hassled after a few weeks. They're going to say, do you know what? Sort that out for me. Like person buying that stuff, get it from a good farm so I don't have to face this level of hassle. We, we need to be, Wendell Berry, the, the great farmer writer from America who's my friend, he says we've become the most thoughtless eaters in history. And he's right. We need to stop being thoughtless eaters. We need to become thoughtful eaters and, and become troublesome. And, and I, would, I would urge people at Christmas, make Christmas dinner the first time you do this where you as a family or as a household or a group of friends you say hang on let's make a real effort on this let's think about where every ingredient comes from let's even if it's only one meal as a token effort to make us get in the mindset let's try and do this locally
0: and from farms where we like what they do James thank you thank you very much um thank you a fantastic book, a fantastic present and you're really, you've done such a huge thing by writing these books and being you and advocating this and it, it couldn't be more important and thank you so much for joining us. Our bookstore, Newham Books, will be really happy, the details are in the chat, to send everybody copies of James's books and I think we've got some, we got some signed ones there. We've also got um, lots more questions online, um, but I don't know, James, if you're going to have a chance to look at any of them. I, I'm going to leave you with I've got a message from saying we could have an extra minute. So I'm going to ask you one more question. What do you feel about the school, the, the food plan?
1: Um, I read Henry,
0: Henry's thing.
1: Yeah. So um, with uh, all I can confess here to my shame is I haven't had a chance to read it properly. So I'm, I'm always juggling too much. I'm trying to, I've got four kids and a farm. I'm way behind on the national food strategy which isn't fair to Henry Dimbleby because he sent it to me some time ago and he was quite keen that I had a voice in it. Um, I haven't had the time to give that the consideration it deserves. i dipped into some bits of it and it looked quite thoughtful and intelligent. So I suspect you know more about it than I do. So I, I'm not going to, no. I'm not going to say too much.
0: I know a bit because I was sort of a very small time advisor on it. So I do know a bit, but I wanted to get your feedback, but I mean, I couldn't agree more with everything that you said and, um, yeah, I and, and is, it, is my perception right, Rosie, that they've however good or bad it is
1: and however wise Henry's ideas might be, they've sort of shelved it anyway, haven't they?
0: No, not yet. not yet yet. for a white paper in about february but there's always the fear it might not be a a white paper that leads to a bill but in fact we're doing a lot about trying to push for a food bill i mean the the trouble about the food plan there's the brilliance of it and the trouble is how big it is and always in government they want to nip off some easy bit that you can say well i've done that because i put the sugar tax up and that's going to solve a problem well in fact because it doesn't solve a problem because the problems are so systemic and it, it, politically systemic stuff is very 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 hard to deal with and food as the great professor tim lang said food is in 17 ministries nobody owns it it's shoveled off a bit here and a bit there so it's tricky
1: and i would actually i would urge people to read his book feeding britain it's really good and he's he's very professor tim lang's very wise he says a lot of things i agree with um and he's a fantastic critic about how risky this stuff is like we're, the, the risks that we're running at the moment like i heard one of the scientists talking about covid on the news a couple of days ago saying this could get way worse like like and there's other things coming down the track that could be way worse than this and we already know that we've got quite close at times to having food supply issue problems we we're running a, a horrific level of risk at the moment and and that's another reason why I believe we need re- robust and resilient local food systems, and to really start taking seriously good British farming. And so
0: the other the other side of the risk is the health side, and the fact that people who were overweight or obese were way more likely to get COVID, way more likely to die, and that will be true. And uh, you know, we're not we're not addressing you know that end of it is is failing. Four percent extra kids were obese by the age of five during the pandemic. So. You know, we're going in all the wrong directions from both the point of view of how we farm and how we eat. So, somewhere there has to be a big revolutionary moment. I like the idea of us all being super annoying. I think. <laughs> anyway,
1: uh, can I can I say th- thank you everybody for giving up uh, you particularly, but everyone that's listening, thank you for giving up an evening to to listen to me blather i don't take it for granted and uh, i'm very grateful to be asked
0: thank you well it was fantastic to drop into your life uh, uh, on the cumbrian hills for an hour and to hear your enthusiasm and please keep it up and we're all really grateful to you so thank you and uh, have a happy christmas thank take you the- happy christmas to you and
1: everyone else thank you okay bye-bye, bye-bye.